Thank you, Father Thomas, and uh, thank you all for joining us this evening. Um, so as Father Thomas said, I'm, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this large-scale research project. It's actually the very first ever large-scale research project to try to measure empirically uh, what scientists mean by beauty and the role of beauty in science. And, um, and I'm going to say a little bit about, about what that might have to do with, with religion. Uh, it's going to be a largely descriptive presentation where I'm going to share with you the findings from our study. We're still processing these data, trying to make sense of them, so I'd be very grateful for your questions, your comments, your insights into how to better make sense of what we're finding. To start with, uh, why should we bother to study beauty in science? Um, there are a couple of reasons, at least. One is if you look at scientists, there's a sort of image problem uh, that scientists seem to have. Uh, this is a, a, a drawing made by a young child who visited Fermilab, uh, a major physics facility in Chicago, uh, national lab in the United States, uh, before she went to the lab. And this is uh, a kind of experiment that many of these national labs do. They've been doing this for a few decades now, is trying to change children's minds about who scientists are. But for the past couple of decades, scientists in most children's minds still look like this. Uh, this is somebody who looks a bit like Frank Wilczek, the Nobel Prize winner recently. Um, but this idea of scientists as, as being these sort of isolated figures working in their labs with you know, white lab coats, uh, emotionally inca in incapable and socially awkward and so on, uh, isn't particularly attractive to a lot of people, right? So it's, it's, it's to some degree an impediment when, when you think about drawing young children into science, if that's, if that's their image of a scientist. Fortunately, the lab visits help change that image, but those, those images still, still remain. But science itself has a bit of an image problem, because when you look at uh, science, when you, when you think about the, the word science, what do you associate with, uh, with, this, with this word? Typically, things like rational, systematic, methodical, analytical, calculating. Seldom do we think of science as beautiful. And it's, it's not a term that people typically associate with science. And, and when I tell people that I'm studying beauty in science, they say, that just seems like an oxymoron. Why would you do that? What does that even mean? Uh, is there even beauty in science? So um, this is an old critique, at least in the English-speaking world, that goes back to people like, like uh, John Keats, the romantic poet, who complained that Newton had destroyed all the poetry of the rainbow by reducing it to the prismatic colors. And in his fam famous poem, Lamia, Keats complained that uh, do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy and science. So philosophy here, he means natural science. Right? Philosophy, natural philosophy, will clip an angel's wings, conquer all mysteries by a rule and line, empty the haunted air and nomad mine, unweave a rainbow. Uh, the idea here is that science strips away the mystery from reality. It's, it's reductionist, and that's the point of science, is to, is to take away the mystery and reduce it to, to things that are more basic, um, and in that you lose that sense of mystery. But scientists recently have been pushing back against this sort of complaint, and uh, a couple of decades ago Richard Dawkins, the famous Oxford biologist, in his book Unweaving the Rainbow, which is aimed precisely at Keats's complaint, argued that the feeling of odd wonder that science can give us is one of the highest experiences of which the human psyche is capable. He said it's a deep aesthetic passion to rank with the finest that music and poetry can deliver, and it's truly one of the things that make life worth living. Right, so this argument from Dawkins and many others is that science is not, uh, is not stripping away the mystery from reality, but rather enhancing it. I'll give you another example from the American Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman. You can hear it from his own mouth. 
I have a friend who's an artist, and sometimes I think you always say, the real friend, you hold up the father and say, look how beautiful it is, and I agree. And he said, you see, I die in Mars, you see how beautiful this is. But you decide this whole paper is all apart and becomes dull thing. And I think that he's kind of nerdy. First of all, the beauty that he sees is so better than the other thing. me too. I believe all my life. I think the mind is better than his that I can appreciate the beauty of the father. At the same time, I see much more about the father than he sees. I can imagine some complicated actions. But because I have a beauty, I mean, it's not just Beauty at this dimension, one sentence, it's also future swallowers, the inner structure, also the processes, the fact that the colors of the flower can evolve in order to attract insects to pollinate it is interesting. It means that insects can see the color. It adds question. Does this aesthetic sense also exist in the world of forms? Does it, why is it aesthetic? All kinds of interesting questions which the science knowledge only adds to the excitement and mystery we all love. Wow, it only adds. I don't understand how it gets to the crowds. Right, so it's fine. It says it only... I have a Oops. There we go. So it only adds, he says. It doesn't subtract, right? Science enhances our ability to understand reality and to appreciate its beauty. The other kind of thing we've heard from, from famous scientists are sentiments like this. Newton says this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Or Einstein, he said the most beautiful and deepest experience a man can have is a sense of the mysterious. It is the underlying principle of religion as well as of all serious endeavor in art and in science. So there are scientists who argue not only does science help you understand and appreciate the beauty of reality, but it can also point you, this, this encounter with beauty can also point you to God, right? So my question is, how universal are these sorts of claims? Are these just the prerogatives of geniuses, Nobel Prize winners, celebrity scientists? Or do these kinds of experiences and sentiments apply to the ordinary practice of science? Does your everyday average scientist experience science as beautiful, as, as uh, opening uh, them to the, to the beauty of, of reality, as, as even pointing to God? Right? What does that look like? And so to answer these questions, we did a large-scale study in four countries, the US, UK, Italy, and India. Uh, there are a number of reasons why we chose those countries, and I can go into that later in the Q&A if you like. But we wanted to look at countries that had some differences in their religious tradition, some differences in their scientific infrastructure, uh, potentially different aesthetic traditions in their education systems, and so on. And in these countries, we studied physicists and biologists and wanted to know a few things. First of all, what does beauty mean to scientists? When they use that word, what does that imply? How do scientists experience beauty, awe, and wonder in their scientific work? How do such aesthetic experiences shape the practice of science? What implications might scientists' aesthetic experiences have for well-being, motivation, and retention in science careers? And then finally, how might aesthetics be related to religion or spirituality among scientists? The starting point for this inquiry was actually when I was doing uh, another massive study of scientists about 10 years ago, and it was, a, it was a study of what scientists think about religion. And in that project, we were interviewing scientists about the challenges they were experiencing in their work. So a lot of them told us about how they had sacrificed a lot 
for the sake of their, their scientific vocations. They had given up lucrative careers in industry. They could be paid as much as their Wall Street colleagues. They chose not to do that. Um, they're working long hours in the lab. They had somehow sacrificed their families as well. And we asked them, why do you do it? What makes it worthwhile? And a number of them would say, because it's beautiful. And these were bench scientists in physics and biology. They weren't um, working in industry. They weren't curing cancer. Right? So beauty kept coming up as a, a, a rationale for them. And that's, that's part of why I want to understand, well, what does it mean? Why does it keep coming up? What does it mean to them? Um, and then how do we measure it, if that's even possible? And so that was the, ch that was the task. And what we did was we took scientists in physics and biology departments at PhD-granting universities and research institutes in those four countries. We collected a list of all of these scientists. And from that, there was about 22,000 scientists. We were able to get uh, nearly 3,500 to complete our survey. So that's a completion rate of 15%, which is not great. Um, it's one limitation of our project. But nobody likes taking surveys. I typically say no to any survey request that comes to me, so I totally understand. Um, we had a lot of problems with the data collection. There were some universities that just blocked our project and, and wouldn't let scientists even receive the emails and so on. Um, but fortunately, since we had the sampling frame, we were able to wait, apply survey weights to the data to overcome selection bias to some degree. On top of these surveys, we also did in-depth interviews. So the surveys were about 20, 25 minutes long, and then we did about an hour, hour and a half long interviews with 215 of these scientists. So I can say a lot more about the methodology in the Q&A if you like. Uh, I want to jump to talking about the first part of our results, which is beauty. So what do scientists mean by beauty? So in that first project that I told you about, which we did 10 years ago, and we asked, you know, we heard scientists telling us, uh, I do this because it's beautiful. We started to ask them, well, what do you mean by beauty? What does that word mean to you? We started asking scientists. Some scientists are telling us they're experiencing profound moments of beauty and awe and wonder in their work. Is something like that true for you? Where do you encounter it? Right, so we had an open-ended question, and we started collecting their responses. And based on those, we developed a few categories that we tested a couple of times with groups of scientists and essentially figured out that for physicists and biologists, when they're talking about beauty, it doesn't mean an infinite range of things. It means only about 10 things. It means these sorts of things. The inner logic of systems, the hidden order or patterns that they discover in their work, elegance, simplicity, complexity, symmetry, a sense of fit, harmony, pleasing colors or shapes, and sometimes asymmetry. Right? And so for most of these scientists, beauty has to do with things like the inner logic of systems, the hidden order of patterns, and elegance. I'll tell you what, what those sorts of things mean. There's some differences by discipline. In fact, if you look at these different aesthetic criteria by the disciplines of physics and biology, you see some interesting patterns. Um, for physicists, you can see the vast majority of them associate beauty with symmetry and simplicity. Right? So symmetry in physics doesn't necessarily mean visual symmetry. For biologists, it, it mostly does. Um, you, can, you can have um, an object that has is, that is, uh, got rotational symmetry or is symmetrical or, you know, around a horizontal or vertical axis. But for, for most physicists, symmetry has to do with the symmetry of laws and theories. And so it's about um, the, the ability to translate a particular law over space or over time. And that's what allows for things like conservation of energy, conservation of momentum. So laws that are true on Earth are true on other planets as well, elsewhere in the universe, etc. Right. And that is experienced as beautiful. Uh, equations that are able to capture 
that sort of symmetry are seen as profoundly beautiful. Um, biologists, on the other hand, tend to find beauty in complexity much more than physicists do, as well as in pleasing colors or shapes. If you're a theoretical physicist working with equations, you don't see any pleasing colors or shapes in your work. Um, but by and large, where you find commonality is, is around these two things, the hidden order and the inner logic of systems. And I'll say a little bit about that in a couple of minutes. Now, where in their work do scientists encounter beauty, whatever it means to them? Largely, it's in the phenomena they study. So for 75% of scientists in these countries, they find beauty in the cells and particles and so on that they study. For many of them, it's in scientific theories. And here, it's much more significant for physicists than biologists. Teaching science is, 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 is experienced as beautiful. Uh, seeing that light bulb go off in your students' eyes, seeing them gain an insight into something, that is experienced as profoundly beautiful. The process of scientific research itself, designing an experiment, um, constructing an elegant experiment, and so on. Um, note where they don't really find beauty in their scientific workplaces. Many of them work in labs that have no windows, that have uh, often no air conditioning, or um, very suffocating environments, seen as very, experienced as very unpleasing. Um, scientific conference presentation is not seen as very beautiful by most scientists. Um, we, when we ask scientists about where do you encounter beauty in your work, can you give me an example? Uh, many of them were very quick to give us uh, visual examples. And so these are some of the kinds of things they would, they would send us. Um, they would give us images of things that they found in their data or in their models. They would give us images of things that they study, of detectors they're building, of the kinds of phenomena they're studying. So it, so it varies. Um, but these are the various kinds of sensory beauty that they experience, and I'll say more about that. Um, I'll give you an example of how these kinds of beauty matter to scientists. So one biologist told us, to be honest, anytime you look underneath the microscope, it is, as a biologist, there's some experiments that are just more exciting to do than others because, as I said, there's a visual aspect to it that is much more stimulating. It's more exciting to see a cell responding under the microscope than having a graph that just showed you this, some quantification of the data, if you will. Even though the quantification is equally, if not more so important, it's not maybe as satisfying as seeing that process unfold under the microscope. So looking under it, it was really such a beautiful moment seeing sort of the, really looking at the structure of the cell being rearranged in a way that I predicted, right? And so that relationship to the, the expectations of your, of your, of your uh, theory and your experiment. Um, and then it's exciting to run to the other people uh, in the lab to come look at it. It's a joy to share. So you can see that there's the, the, the beauty of, of discovering something, even if it's something you predicted, but, but finding that, ah, it really is like this, and that is experienced as satisfying, and then that motivates you, propels you to want to share it with others, and it builds the scientific community. It provides the fuel for teaching and, and mentoring, right? Um, and it's not just in, in the things you discover. It can also be in the construction of the equipment you're putting together. So one physicist told us, uh, we put together these amazing, well, that's one of the detectors, and he showed us one of the detectors. That's a silicon thing that's a couple of millimeters across, and the actual devices we put together, they do end up being physically beautiful. A lot of it, to me, what's really beautiful about them is there's so much detail in it that matters. And there's that sense of, it's incredible that we as human beings are capable of building this, things this small that are capable of doing so much, right? The elegance of these structures. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we hear. So overall, listening to these accounts, these, these interviews, these um, the survey data, we find three main types of beauty in science. The first is what we call sensory beauty, the second, useful beauty, and the third, the beauty of understanding. And by sensory beauty, it's, it's sort of fairly obvious. It's the sort of thing I was talking to you about. 
75% uh, of scientists encounter beauty in the phenomena they study. Uh, one biologist gave us this example. I personally think that a pollinator visiting a flower, both of those things to me are incredibly beautiful. The two of them interacting with each other, I think is one of the most beautiful things in nature, which is why I study pollination. You can see the connection to their motivation for becoming scientists, which more than 50% of scientists in the countries we study say they became scientists because they encountered beauty in science. Uh, one Italian scientist went on to say, if you do not feel wonder in front of certain things, you cannot be a scientist. It has to move you. It has to propel you. It has to evoke that sense of wonder. An example of that comes from a biologist in India who showed us these slides. She, again, was very enthusiastic, like a lot of scientists, wanted to say, you have to see this. And so these are bacterial needles. This is salmonella. Um, and you can look at these structures, and she said, if I didn't tell you this was a bacterial needle, you would have thought that this thing by itself was one of these pillars, these tambas of a Hindu temple. This is a you know, 3,000-year-old Hindu temple, and the structure looks identical. And she was absolutely shocked by that, um, right? awestruck by, by, by the similarity. And then, of course, it's the functioning of this. What does this needle do? Why is it structured like this? Right? And, and how does it inject itself into the host and so on? Those are the questions that start to emerge, and they lead to a sense of wonder, a sense of delight. So 83% of scientists report feeling that the research that they were doing opened up new mysteries for them to explore, like Feynman said, at least a few times a year. Right? So it's a regular enough experience that the thing you're researching opens the doorway to, to something, something new, heightens the sense of mystery. The second kind of beauty is what we call useful beauty. And this has to do with the use of criteria like symmetry and simplicity and elegance and aptness, those aesthetic criteria. They're used as heuristics for the truth. So when you have equations that are symmetrical, theories that are symmetrical, or simple, or elegant, you believe they're more likely to be true. Largely, this is the case in theoretical physics. So Paul Dirac very famously or infamously said, it is more important to have beauty in one's equations than to have them fit experiment. So what do you mean by this? Well, there are a lot of scientists in the first half of the 20th century who were developing very beautiful, mathematically beautiful equations. And they stuck to their guns even when experimental data initially seemed to prove them wrong. And they said, nah, the experiments are wrong. Wait and watch. And it turned out they were right. The experiments did turn out to be wrong. And those little beautiful equations turned out to be right. Um, Murray Gelman similarly said, in fundamental physics, a beautiful or elegant theory is more likely to be correct than a theory that is inelegant. Right? And this beauty here has to do with, with the mathematics. Um, it has to be, you know, uh, have, have certain kinds of, of, of elegance. You're, you're explaining the maximum number of things with the minimum number of terms in your models. Your parameters don't look like they have been arbitrarily fine-tuned, etc. There are a bunch of criteria. But there's a bit of a problem, because historically, if you look beyond the 20th century just to the last several centuries, many beautiful theories were wrong, and ugly theories turned out to be right, and then no longer were considered ugly. Uh, if you consider the ways in which we tried to make sense of planetary orbits, for a long time we thought that planetary orbits had to be circular, had to be spherical, because the sphere was the most beautiful structure. Um, it turned out it wasn't quite accurate that after building complex models of epicycle upon epicycle upon epicycle to explain the data, uh, the ellipse turned out to be a better model. And after it started being used as a model, it was no longer seen as ugly. Right? So, there are ways in which we can change our, our tastes based on what the theories tell us. So, so Einstein famously found quantum mechanics very ugly, but most scientists today, most physicists today don't. 
Right? So that's, that's a problem for this heuristic model. And other scientists, uh, other physicists like Jim Baggett, argue that theories of supersymmetry, superstrings, the multiverse, and so on, driven largely by beautiful mathematics, are not only not true, they're not even science. They're fairy tale physics. They argue that there's no way to even in principle begin to imagine what an experiment could look like that could validate the theory of the multiverse. How do you, how do you test that? How do you test multiverses? And so this is a kind of complaint that's coming back and saying this is, you know, string theory, 11 dimensions, come on, you know. What's the, what's the line between science and science fiction? Um, so that's a kind of, of pushback. And, and more recently, Zabina Hassenfelder in her book, Lost in Math, subtitled How Beauty Leads Physics Astray, argues that the reliance on aesthetic criteria in particle physics especially uh, is leading physicists astray. It's leading them to invest large sums of money, billions of euros, building these large colliders, like the one you work at, um, that she thinks are, are not really producing uh, enough new physics to warrant uh, the expenditure. Um, so that's the kind of pushback. And so I'm not a physicist, but, but what we did as sociologists was we just fed scientists some of these quotations and said, what do you all think? And when we asked them, do you think a beautiful or elegant theory is more likely to be correct than one that is inelegant? We found that there's quite a bit of a divide there. 40% disagree and, you know, 23% agree. Mathematical beauty is it a good indicator of scientific truth. We find, again, they're quite divided. 34% disagree, 27% agree. And then Dirac's quotation, is it more important to have beauty in one's equations than to have them fit experiment? We only asked this question of physicists because in our pilot test, when we offered this question to biologists in our survey, they said, please get rid of that question. It's absolute nonsense. Um, so 70% of physicists disagree with Dirac, right? and 9% agree. So what does this mean? We've interviewed scientists, asked them what they think about this stuff, and, and essentially what they say is beauty can be useful, but it can also be misleading. It's not always a reliable guide. So sometimes it's useful. It's nice to have a beautiful equation it's worth investigating whether that equation is true or not, but don't put all your eggs in that basket. You've got to stay open to surprises. So, so that's theory, but beauty could also be useful for experiments. And so we have a number of scientists, those who are experimentalists, who say elegance is really important. And one biologist told us, I, I, I do try to make our experimental design as elegant and as direct as possible, which for me is a form of beauty, because the less effort we have to put into getting an answer, the better. The faster, the cleaner, the fewer different parameters we have to control for in an experiment, the more convincing and clean the information will be that they get out of it. So you want beauty in designing a good experiment. You certainly don't want a messy experiment. You want beauty when, when writing code. You don't want messy code, right? So there are ways in which beauty, scientists think, can be useful outside of the scope of theories. But a lot of the conversation around beauty and science has been concentrated on scientific theories, and we're finding that actually for scientists in other fields, beauty could be equally important and maybe less um, controversial. Uh, even here, though, there's some fields like, uh, like ecology where they say things like, well, beauty is nice to have, but really if you're doing field work and you're out there, you have, you know, the weather to contend with, it's not necessarily going to comply with you. You can't wait for the perfect weather to, conduct, you know, to collect your samples. So even though beauty is nice to reduce you know, the potential confounds and various parameters and so forth, that kind of elegance may be a bit of a pipe dream and, and, and may be too much of a luxury. So all that is useful beauty, but the third kind is what we think is the most important. That's the beauty of understanding. And so what does this mean? One US biologist who is a Nobel Prize winner uh, told us it is recognizing this is what's going on, that there's a leap to the truth or a leap to the sense of generalization or something beyond the particular 
that in some way represents the real thing that's there, the real thing that's going on. We think of that as beautiful. I interviewed a poet recently, because I've been doing some uh, more informal research on uh, professionals from other fields outside of science to try to understand what beauty means to them. So I've been talking to lawyers, believe it or not, who find beauty in their work, um, cocktail bar owners, chefs, and poets. And as one poet told me when I asked him, what is a beautiful poem, he says, it's when you read something and you go, ah, that's how things are. And, and he used exactly the same phrase that this biologist did. So it's that recognition of reality is self-disclosure to you, that, ah, this is how things are. Another physicist told us, I think one of our driving purposes being human in an inhuman material world is to understand the inhuman material world better and to be reconciled to it. And I think that's what science does. And that's one of the most beautiful and deep and poetic activities one can pursue as a human being. Right? Um, the late Tom McLeish, who, who just passed away last week, a uh, British physicist, wrote this beautiful book called The Poetry and Music of Science. I highly recommend it. Uh, as a physicist, he went and conducted interviews with poets and musicians and found that the creative process is identical across these fields. Um, so anyway, this is the, the way in which scientists seem to, to argue that, that what science is about is about recognition, is about understanding, and that experience of understanding is profoundly beautiful. One non-religious British physicist said, you have those moments of where it's just, I think it's like looking into the face of God for non-religious people. Or you can look at something and think, oh my God, that is how things actually work, that's how things are. Um, so an analogy to the beatific vision, right? And so you can see very clearly an evocation of a religious sense, religious sensibility, even among non-religious scientists in their encounters with beauty. So 87% of scientists report that they felt a sense of clarity as they saw how things fit together at least a few times a year. 86% report they were thrilled by a new insight a few times a year. 61% felt a sense of reverence or respect about what they were discovering at least a few times a year. 60% ascribe beauty to hidden order or in a logic of systems, or and. Uh, if you use or, it comes to about 78%. 57% of scientists say that encountering beauty improves scientific understanding. Right? It helps you gain a better sense of how reality works. And this leads us to argue that science is an aesthetic quest. It is a quest for beauty, as a quest for the beauty of understanding in particular. That's the business you're in as a scientist. And that's what makes you endure all of the nonsense you have to put up with uh, in academia. Now, what are the consequences of scientists encountering beauty in their work? The things like motivation, perseverance, and well-being. So 62% of scientists stated that encountering beauty motivated them to pursue a scientific career. 50% said that encountering beauty helps them persevere when they experience difficulties or failure in their work. And then beauty, more frequently, the more frequently you encounter beauty and awe and wonder in your work, the higher your well-being, controlling for all, all sorts of other factors, so controlling for discipline and, and age and the effects of the pandemic, etc. the more frequently you encounter beauty and awe and wonder in your work, the higher your overall well-being. So beauty seems to matter for uh, the good of scientists. But there are obstacles. The publish or perish culture in academia, the increased specialization that makes it hard for you to actually ask big questions or to put the big picture together, funding constraints on projects that have to be really short-term oriented uh, and can't really allow you to pursue big and interesting questions that take a long time, mistreatment that a lot of scientists, particularly minorities, women in particular, experience in science, those are obstacles to, uh, to encountering this kind of beauty. We spoke to some scientists who had left academia about the toll of institutional pressures and how that affected them, and they told us, 
we're killing the creativity in 20 to 30 year olds. The publisher parish system tells people you don't have to be creative, you have to be productive. Another biologist told us there's a constant fear of if you don't do this, if you don't hit these metrics, you're not going to be able to do what you love to do anymore. We find if we look at the frequency of aesthetic experience across different career stages, it's highest when you're in grad school and it drops progressively until you become an assistant professor when it's the worst. And then it sort of goes back up a little bit to the point when you become a full professor, but it never reaches about the peak of, of what it was like as a grad student. So that sense of awe, the sense of wonder, the sense of beauty that you find somehow gets beaten out of you to some degree in the academic process. Nevertheless, scientists do experience this kind of beauty and it matters to them. Many of them say that it matters to uh, motivate them to teach. So 62% say that encountering beauty motivates them to share the beauty of science through teaching and mentoring. And 49% say that encountering beauty in their work motivates them to communicate science to the public. At the same time though, you know, one of the motivations for us in doing this project was we thought uh, maybe if we asked scientists uh, about how they could use beauty to better improve public trust in science and in scientists, they might come up with some new creative ideas. And um, particularly in fields like, say, you know, the, the ways in which um, you know, scientists have, have communicated information about things like climate change, there's a perception that the, the science communication is, is overly moralistic. There's a kind of finger wagging, you should listen to us, we're the experts. And people push back against that and say, no one's going to tell me what to do. Um, so what if you would emphasize the beauty of science with that help? Scientists said, nope, you're being really naive. That's not going to help. Um, they're very ambivalent about the value of beauty for improving public trust in science or in scientists. And they said, look, science is about discovery, and science is provisional, and scientists appreciate that knowledge is provisional. And a lot of times, things we learn about, science, learn about in science are in conflict with ideas that people hold in their hearts very strongly. So I think a lot of times people distrust that in science. So we can see this certainly in the response to the COVID pandemic, where you had a lot of uh, the public in many countries saying, why are scientists saying one thing on one day and another thing the other day? They're inconsistent, they're waffling, etc. cetera. Uh, and then you had, on the other hand, the attempts of uh, people in the government to portray science as infallible and as, as pronouncing you know, hard truths. Um, so these things are, are things that scientists saw as problematic, and they, they, they didn't like the way that science about the vaccine, for instance, was communicated. Um, they wanted it to be made clear that science is provisional, even though it's the best knowledge we have about the natural world. Um, but the other thing, though, is this ambivalence resonates very much with an old argument that Hobbes made uh, in his arguments with Boyle more than 350 years ago. So Boyle thought, you know, in discovering the, developing the experimental method, that, ah, here's a way where you can get consensus on truth. And get people together, and I'll, I'll, I'll do this demonstration, and then we have all of these witnesses who can say, look, we saw this thing change, and therefore this thing is true. And Hobbes came along and said, nah, it's not going to work. People aren't just going to be convinced by data. People are going to bring to data their interpretations, and if your data, no matter how beautiful your facts are, uh, reinforce their priors, reinforce their political beliefs, they'd be happy to accept what you have to say, and if your data threaten them, challenge their ways of life, etc., they're going to reject what you have to say, uh, no matter how beautiful. And it uh, turns out most scientists are Hobbesian. And they, they don't really think that beauty, the beauty of facts, is really going to be that, that helpful. But going to Dostoevsky's question, you know, can beauty save the world? Can beauty of science actually be useful? Um, not if we think of beauty in terms of facts, but maybe if we think of the beauty of understanding. This beauty of understanding requires intellectual humility. It requires the ability to be surprised. It requires openness. It requires a willingness to change your mind and even a delight in being wrong because that means you're 
discovering something new, right? You have to have something that you love more than your own opinion and that you're pursuing. And if we can cultivate that, we think perhaps we can uh, overcome a lot of the challenges we're facing in our polarized world, and that may be the most important thing that scientists can teach us in these polarized times. So I want to talk now about religiosity. So what is, what is, this is, we've talked about beauty. What does religiosity look like among these scientists? Most scientists in these countries, which we found in this study as well as the study we did a few years ago, are not religious in any way. They say they don't belong to a religion. They consider themselves non-religious. So the vast majority of scientists in these countries, 55%, say they don't belong. They're not affiliated with any religion. They're about 10%, or a little bit over 10% who are Catholic, Protestant, Hindu, not surprising given we're looking at Italy and the US, the UK and India. If we ask them though about whether they identify as religious and or spiritual or neither, we see an interesting distribution. So the most, you know, the majority of them are neither religious nor spiritual. But there are a significant number of scientists who identify in some other category. So we have across these countries a significant minority who identify as religious and spiritual more in India than the other countries. Many who identify as religious but not spiritual. In India that means, yeah, I go to religious ceremonies, my spouse is religious, we have to have ceremonies in our house, I can't opt out of those things. My staff have to perform religious ceremonies and perhaps worship you know, my scientific instruments. Um, if I say no to that, they're going to sabotage the equipment. Can't have that. So there's some who are religious but not spiritual, many who are spiritual but not religious, and varies across country, and, um, and that means you know something uh, to these to these scientists. Spirituality, particularly in, uh, in the U.S., U.K., and India, is is, is something that's important. Uh, not in, in the U.S., U.K., and Italy uh, more so than than in India. So, if we look at the number of scientists who say that religion or spirituality, either religion or spirituality, is at least moderately important, you have a significant minority there. So, more than 30% in India, about 27% in Italy more than 25% in the US see themselves as uh, valuing religion or spirituality to some degree. And what we find is that those scientists who consider themselves more spiritual are more aesthetically inclined. That is, dispositionally, they're the kinds of people who say that they often feel awe, see beauty around them, feel wonder around them. Um, this is a, a popular psychological scale uh, that, that's called the, the trait awe scale. So this is, this is a, a scale describing that the higher you score on this, the more you are a sort of aesthetically attuned person. And it turns out that those scientists who say they're more spiritual are more aesthetically attuned. Also, scientists who are either religious or spiritual experience awe more frequently in their workplace than those who are not. Turns out that this doesn't really matter for beauty and wonder. And by beauty here, we mean things like encountering symmetry at work or, or coming across elegance in your equations or experiencing the beauty of understanding more frequently. Turns out religiosity and spirituality don't seem significantly related to that. But it, it does matter for awe, which has to do with the sense of self becoming somehow smaller, feeling like you're in the presence of something grand. And as I'll say in a minute, for many scientists, that is what spirituality means. It is having an experience of awe. So if you look at what is the relationship between religiosity or spirituality and aesthetic experience, we find actually there are four different kinds of relationships. Sometimes religiosity or spirituality attunes the scientists to aesthetic experience. At other times, aesthetic experience evokes religiosity. Still other times, like I said, it's the same thing. And sometimes they have nothing to do with each other. 
So I'll walk you through very briefly what these things look like. So what is attunement? One Protestant scientist said, I'm by no means a Bible expert, but the more I learn about science, the more I learn about God in his word, I do feel there's some kind of crossover. And, and then he goes on to say, in mathematics, you might say there are perfect numbers that appear in nature. Like, that is awe. And definitely the first thing I say is, wow, like, math is awesome and science is awesome, but they're awesome because God is awesome. God created them. That's the way I view it. I start with God because God is awesome. The things that he creates are beautiful. I can experience that beauty as something given by God. Another Hindu physicist said, I do believe in God, and I do think that for every creation there has to be a creator. Whoever created this universe must be very, very intelligent. And so, yeah, he doesn't just do things randomly. He or she, they don't do things randomly. There's some pattern to it. There's some inherent beauty to what God has created. And our job as scientists is to unlock that beauty, to find that beauty. All right, start with God. It attunes you to beauty, and your job is to find the beauty and understand it. It could go in the opposite direction. You could start with aesthetic experience. So one uh, US Protestant told us, when I stand in the mountains of Mongolia and I look out, I can't help but link the two. I'm not sure I agree with all the people in the church by the divine being. I'm more thinking of divine as broader. I can't help but evoke that feeling of grandeur and awe when I'm working in nature. And if there is a God, I guess I feel closer to God when I'm out there, right? It's that experience of awe in nature that makes me think, gosh, there must be a God, right? It goes in the other direction. And for some, it's the same thing. So one, one other uh, physicist told us, it's kind of hard to use language that in, isn't inherently spiritual to describe these feelings because it's that feeling of connection with the universe around you. You're like, yes, I understand why this is happening. And I can see it reliably and predictably every single time occurring the same way. So there's that wonder, which is playful and a bit spiritual, like that childlike curiosity, that intrigue. So it probably sounds strange to say that working with uranium and nuclear waste is directly connected to my understanding of my own spirituality, but they are intertwined. The deeper your understanding of the universe, the deeper your understanding of yourself and your place in the universe and why you're here and what you're doing, and that's a spiritual thing for me. All right, so it's the same thing. And for others, there's no relationship. So one Italian Catholic scientist said, I understand what you mean, but I was never able to experience anything like that. When I perceive awe, surprise, wonder, interest, beauty in relation to my research, I never make a connection with something religious or spiritual. Things are as they are because of the way nature goes. I never thought about anything more spiritual. I don't see the connection. I have my faith, and there's nature. Um, another Hindu scientist said, yes, you know, I'm religious, I'm spiritual, but when I'm out there in nature and I experience a rainbow or a sunset, I experience that as a human being and not as a scientist. So he's not like Feynman. He says, I don't put my scientist hat on. My scientist hat is for when I'm in the lab. When I'm in nature, I'm a human being. So you find people separate things like that. Now, these are themes that came up from our interviews after we did the surveys. We don't really know how these four uh, pathways are distributed in the data. The other thing we looked at is how religiosity and spirituality is related to scientists' well-being. And here we find that scientists who are more religious, not spiritual, but religious, report greater levels of well-being. So this is a, a thing called the Harvard Human Flourishing Index. It's an overall global measure of life satisfaction, physical health, mental health, um, sense of purpose, virtue, uh, social relationships, etc. So scientists who are more religious, controlling for other factors, tend to be flourishing at higher levels than scientists who are not religious. So the baseline here is scientists who are neither religious nor spiritual, and these are scientists who are not religious but they're spiritual, but you can see it's much more the scientists who are religious than, than scientists who are spiritual who are flourishing. And it works the same for negative mental health. If you look at psychological distress, 
scientists who are religious and spiritual or scientists who are religious but not spiritual have lower levels of psychological distress compared to scientists who are not religious but spiritual or neither religious nor spiritual. Now, we don't have a lot of religion variables in this data set, unfortunately, since it was really restricted. We could only ask them about religiosity, spirituality, and their religious affiliation. Um, we think this might have to do with something like religious service attendance and belonging to community that might have some effect on their sense of well-being, particularly during the, during the pandemic. But anyway, these models control for effects of COVID, they control for gender, discipline, country, age, etc., and even aesthetic experience. So what do we make of all this? So overall, we find that most scientists are aligned indeed with Dawkins and Feynman, etc., in seeing science as a source of deep aesthetic passion. We find, as I said, three main types of beauty in science, sensory beauty, useful beauty, and the beauty of understanding. And we want to argue that science is a quest for the beauty of understanding. And it's valuable to cultivate this beauty of understanding even outside of science. Scientists who are more spiritual are more aesthetically inclined. They experience awe more frequently than those who are not. And the positive association between religiosity and well-being that we find in general population studies, so those graphs that I showed you uh, have been well tested in the general public, and, and typically the finding is the more religious you are, the better your mental health, the better your overall well-being. Um, it's true among scientists as well. Turns out scientists are human beings and not very different from other people in this regard. And, and aesthetics, as well as religion, as well as spirituality, all seem to matter in different ways for the well-being of scientists. That's all I got for you. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful, I have to say, to my massive research team for this. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about our study, visit wellbeinginscience.com. There's also a sister project to this called beautyatwork.net, where I have a YouTube channel and a podcast and other kinds of fun stuff exploring beauty in other fields of work. Uh, and my thanks again to Templeton Religion Trust for generously funding this study.